welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And leading off, we're going to summarize some of the top stories in science. Well, the good news is that the vaccine, widespread in the United States now, is effective to 15% of the U.S. population that has been fully vaccinated. And how good is it? Well, the latest results are with Analyzing 30,000 workers, healthcare workers, it turns out to be 99% effective. That's good news for those people who believe in the vaccination. However, there's also a scandal emerging with regards to AstraZeneca, the vaccine that's popular in Europe, back and forth, back and forth, charges and countercharges concerning AstraZeneca, as many nations refuse to administer the vaccine in their territory. And then we're going to talk about Mars. Yes, the helicopter on Mars will take off sometime in April. For the first time in history, a helicopter will fly over an alien terrain in the solar system. And one day fleets, fleets of drone helicopters could be scouring the countryside of Mars looking for a place to put our astronauts and eventually make a settlement. And then we'll say a few things about Alzheimer's disease. Yet another series of genes have been implicated in Alzheimer's disease. And also we'll say a few things about physics. The Large Hadron Collider, the biggest atom smasher in the world, might, might have found a deviation from the standard model of subatomic particles. In other words, we have a model of subatomic particles. It is ugly. It is awkward. It's called the standard model, but hey, it works. But now we find a deviation. And that could hint the fact that there's another theory out there. Another theory which is beautiful, gorgeous, which will explain the universe. And that gets us into my latest book. I have a new book coming out next week. It's called the God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. And it traces the 2,000-year history on the part of the finest minds of the human race to try to find a single equation, a single theme, a single paradigm that can summarize all the laws of nature. And that's what the book is all about, The Search for the God Equation. In fact, Einstein spent the last 30 years of his life chasing after this theory. He wanted an equation, the God equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that would allow him to, quote, read the mind of God. In other words, an equation which would explain all the laws of the universe. You know, all of biology can be summarized essentially as a byproduct of chemistry. All of chemistry, in turn, is a byproduct of the laws of physics. Physics, in turn, is basically reducible to two theories. The theory of the very big, that is relativity, which explains the Big Bang and the black hole. And also the theory of the very small, the quantum theory, the standard model. And the problem is to unite these two great theories into one. This has been the goal for the last 2,000 years. In fact, 2,000 years ago, there were two theories of the theory of everything. One was by Democrates, 
who proposed that the world was made of atoms. A means cannot, tum means cut, so atom means that which you cannot cut. But there was another theory proposed by Pythagoras, the great geometer, who said, no, 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 it's music. Music is the only paradigm rich enough to explain the diversity of this universe of ours. He was looking at a lyre string, and he realized that the longer the lyre string, the lower the note. And then he went to a blacksmith and noticed that the bars in a blacksmith made a lower sound the longer they were. And he said, aha, this is the mathematics of resonances, that the notes, the notes correspond to the origin, that is, what kind of lyre or what kind of metal you are banging on. And he said that the richness of the melodies could explain the universe. Well, eventually, of course, the Roman Empire fell. The European world was plunged in darkness for another 1,500 years. But now, after so many centuries of darkness, we're now converging on a theory of everything. We go back to the theory of Pythagoras, that perhaps music is the paradigm that describes the universe. So today we have something called string theory, very controversial theory. It says that all the subatomic particles are, in fact, vibrations on a tiny string, as Pythagoras envisioned. And physics is nothing but the harmonies of these strings. Chemistry is the melodies you can play on these vibrating strings. The universe is a symphony of vibrating strings. And then the mind of God, the mind of God that Albert Einstein wrote about so eloquently for the last 30 years of his life, the mind of God is cosmic music resonating through 11-dimensional hyperspace. Well, if you want to find out more about this great 2,000-year journey, a journey that has embarked upon the greatest quest in the history of science to find the ultimate equation, get a copy of my latest book. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. Well, let's just jump right into the top stories of the past week. The top story today is that over 15% now, of the U.S. population has been fully vaccinated against the coronavirus, and we already see the results. If you take a look at 30,000 healthcare workers, workers that almost daily are exposed to the virus, we find that it's 99% effective protecting the workers against the virus. And some people are even talking about a return to normalcy. Well, personally, I think that some of that is premature. All the partying going on because of spring break, well, that's going to cause another, another surge in coronavirus cases because, of course, the virus didn't go away. It's still there. In fact, it is mutating. Now, we have a scandal emerging, which is a setback for the vaccination effort. The scandal involves the AstraZeneca vaccine which has embroiled a tremendous controversy, especially in Europe. First of all, many European nations have refused, refused to administer the AstraZeneca vaccine, even though the numbers are very good. Why? Because of the number of blood clots, and some of them fatal, blood clots that have emerged because of people vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine. However, the defenders of the vaccine correctly point out that of the millions, millions of people that have been vaccinated, only a handful have had blood clots, 
which is consistent with statistical deviation. Normally, you would expect if you get a random, a random sample of millions of people, some of them will have blood clots. And so many scientists said that these European nations pulling out of the vaccination effort are foolhardy, but then another controversy emerged. In the United States, initially, United States doctors said, yes, it looks pretty good, the data of the AstraZeneca vaccine. But then it turned out that some of the data was old. Some of the data was withheld. And some people are saying, aha, they cooked the books. The numbers are not correct. Another scandal erupted. Well, the makers of the AstraZeneca vaccine then came out with another statement. And they said, well, they fessed up. They said, yeah, some of the data was old, not the latest, but let's take a look at the latest data. The makers of AstraZeneca claimed 79% efficiency of the vaccine. The new data, yes, indeed, shows a decrease in that number down to 76% efficiency using the latest data. So what does all this mean? First of all, it means that the vaccine is still very good. A vaccine which is 76% effective against the virus is still good, given the fact that, well, the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine are about 95% effective. But this whole controversy casts a shadow on the entire field. Many people who are wavering, should I, should I not, they may be turned off by this entire controversy and say, to hell with vaccines. I think that's very unfortunate because it means that, well, first of all, even with the latest data, the vaccine is still effective. It's not 100% effective. None of the vaccines are, but it's still better than dying of the virus. And then the next question is a word of caution. Is the virus mutating? Well, first of all, what happened to all the viruses of the past? This is not the first pandemic. For example, in 1350 and in 1666, a good fraction of the European population were killed because of these diseases. So where did the diseases go? Well, they, quote, went away. But how did they go away? Well, these viruses killed so many people that there was basically nobody else to infect. It became more and more difficult for the virus or the germs to infect the next generation. So the virus or the germs either mutated to become even more infectious or they basically they petered out. Basically, they became more benign. And that's what we think happened to the Spanish flu virus of 1918, which killed more people than World War I. So what happened to the Spanish flu virus? Well, one theory is that it's still here. It's part of the seasonal flu, that it mutated because there were no more people to infect Either it mutated to become more benign, or it would simply uh, cease to exist totally. And so we think that could happen with the coronavirus if, if enough people get infected and survive, and if we have enough vaccination going on so that we reach, so that we reach herd immunity. However, there's a wild card. As I said, another possibility is that the virus could become more virulent, more contagious. 
Well, at Columbia University, they made a major study to see exactly how effective these vaccines are against these new mutated strains coming from the United Kingdom and especially South Africa. The results are not encouraging at all. They found that the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine tested against the UK variety. Uh, the efficiency dropped by a factor of two. That's very bad news. Even worse was the fact that the results against a South African variety showed a dramatic drop in the efficiency, up to a factor of six. So this means that if, if these mutated viruses can take hold, it means that we may have to have a third booster shot, just like we have booster shots against the seasonal flu. And so this is bad news. But what does it mean? It means it's a race against time. The longer we wait, the more chances are that the, the virus will mutate to create even more virulent varieties. And so it's a race against time. We have to reach herd immunity as fast as possible before more mutations jump out. Well, some people say that first things first, first we gotta take care of our own, and then we can start to look at vaccinating poorer countries and minorities and, and, and places that can't afford the latest in vaccination. Well, there's a problem there with that logic. The problem is that the virus doesn't care whether it affects poor nations or rich nations. It simply wants to spread and kill as many people as it can. And the point is that if the virus circulates in poor countries and mutates in those countries because of jet travel, it's so easy to go between continents, it means that more mutations will jump out that affect everybody. So in other words, in our, it's in our self-interest. It's in our self-interest for rich nations to make sure that even poor nations are vaccinated. Otherwise, new mutations will jump out for which we don't have any vaccine. And so in other words, a word to the wise. Even if it's in our self-interest, we should try to make sure that everybody gets vaccinated. Also, we have news from outer space, specifically Mars. It turns out that the latest Perseverance Mars probe that landed on Mars uh, last month has a helicopter. The helicopter is called Ingenuity. It's a small device. It's about all oh, two feet across, but it's the first helicopter to make a debut on another celestial body. Now, to create a helicopter to fly on Mars was not easy. The atmospheric pressure on Mars is only 1%. 1% that on the planet Earth. In other words, it's like a vacuum that we sometimes create in physics experiments with 1% atmospheric uh, pressure. That's the atmospheric pressure on Mars. It's almost like a vacuum. So it's difficult, but not impossible. And it's been tested in the laboratory and seems to work. So imagine one day a fleet, a fleet of drone helicopters scouring the surface of Mars, looking for landing sites for astronauts, looking for places that may have lava tubes, which can be makeshift uh, caverns and headquarters for the astronauts. Think about it for a moment, a fleet of drone helicopters roaming over the surface of the red planet. And another aspect of the red planet, there's a mystery. Where did the water of Mars go?
Everywhere we look on the surface of Mars, we see evidence of oceans, rivers, streams, lakes, all gone. We can see great riverbeds. We see the outline of an ocean, an ocean perhaps as big as North America. In fact, we think that the total amount of water that Mars once had would be roughly equivalent to the Atlantic Ocean. So where did all that water go? Well, the leading theory about what happened to the water of Mars is as follows. We think that the solar wind was so fierce over millions of years that it blew most of the atmosphere of Mars into outer space. As atmospheric pressure began to drop, then the water began to freeze because the freezing point of water is a function of the atmospheric pressure. In other words, the water of Mars boiled. It boiled away, drifted into outer space, and that's where most of the water went, into outer space. Some of it went to the ice caps, some of it went underground into the permafrost, but most of it simply boiled away and got blown off by the solar wind. That's the conventional theory. But there's a new theory coming along which is creating a lot of excitement. By looking at the ratio between water and heavy water, that is water with just ordinary hydrogen or water with a mutated hydrogen that has an extra neutron, heavy water is heavier than ordinary water. And by measuring the ratio, the ratio between water and heavy water, you can trace back the origin of where the water came from. And when you do the calculation for Mars, you come up with the rather intriguing result that most of the water, most of the water on Mars is still there. That's right, it's frozen, it's in the permafrost, it's underground, but it's still there. Now that could force us to revise our understanding of the red planet. It means that there could be plenty of water on Mars, basically underground. It means that astronauts of the future will be able to create wells dig into the soil of Mars, create wells, and from the wells extract copious amounts of water. Water in turn can be used for rocket fuel by separating out the hydrogen and the oxygen. It can be purified for drinking purposes. It can be used to create uh, aquatic gardens that could then create life forms and vegetables and farming on Mars. Any number of applications are possible. Well, that concludes our discussion of outer space. And now let's say a few things about inner space, specifically Alzheimer's disease. You know, when historians write history, they'll say that the coronavirus was awful, killed over half a million people and counting. However, Alzheimer's disease could be the disease of the century. Its death cult could be in the millions, not in the hundreds of thousands, and it's incurable. However, we're teasing apart the genetic basis of Alzheimer's. It turns out that certain genes are associated with Alzheimer's disease. The APO4E gene, when mutated, is associated with Alzheimer's disease, but it's not the only one. Now scientists are cataloging the various genes that are involved, and just last week they found two more. Two more genes that are involved with the hippocampus of the brain. Now let me explain. The hippocampus is a small horseshoe-shaped device at the very center of the brain, which controls short-term memory. Things that you just memorized and learned and remarked upon a few minutes or a few hours ago. However, 
the virus attacks the hippocampus, and that's why people with Alzheimer's disease lose their short-term memory, but they have a very clear understanding of things that happened 20, 30, 50 years ago. That's the irony of Alzheimer's disease. It starts at the center of the brain and works its way out. Well, these two new genes that were discovered by scientists are directly involved with the hippocampus. So in other words, one day, if we find a genetic therapy for these broken genes, it means that we may be able to limit the damage to the hippocampus so that short-term memories are not destroyed. And just remember that by the time you're in your 80s, something like 50% of the entire population will come down with some form of dementia or Alzheimer's disease. This really is the disease of the century for which there is no cure and it will affect millions of people. And again, one clue, one clue to Alzheimer's disease will be to look at the genetics to find out why is it that certain brains are healthy into their hundreds while other brains have early onset of Alzheimer's disease. And now we're beginning to tease apart and catalog many of the genes involved with Alzheimer's disease. And lastly, let me say something about the world of physics. As you mentioned, the standard model of particles is our finest understanding of the microcosm. The standard model has lots of quarks and protons and neutrons and Yang-Mills particles and leptons, scores of particles. In fact, there's a zoo, a zoo of subatomic particles at that level found by the Large Hadron Collider outside Geneva, Switzerland. The standard model is the ultimate theory of the quantum. It works. It fits the data. However, it's as ugly as sin. It's a theory that only a mother can love. It's a theory with 36 quarks and antiquarks, 21 or so free parameters that are adjustable, three identical generations of particles. It goes on and on and on. And then people say, how can nature be so cruel to create a fundamental theory of all matter that is so ugly that it's like taking a platypus and a whale and a giraffe, scotch taping them together and declaring that to be nature's finest evolutionary creation. There's got to be a better theory than this. Well, the merger between gravity and the standard model, we think, will create this fabled theory, the unified field theory, which will combine the theory of the big, that is relativity, with the theory of the small, that is the standard model. And recently, it was just announced last week, that scientists for the first time found the first slight deviation from the standard model. This is creating a lot of excitement. You see, I got my PhD in theoretical physics back in the 1970s when the standard model was finally uh, assembled and it worked. However, in the last 50 years, there's been no progress in going beyond the standard model. The standard model is a victim of its own success. It is so successful that everyone believes it's correct, but as I said, it's a work in progress. It can't possibly be the final theory. And that's where the first deviation from the standard model is causing lots of excitement. You see, the next model beyond the standard model could be, big question mark, could be string theory. And string theory is what I do for a living. We think that it could very well be the theory of everything, but 
it has an army of detractors and critics who say, show me the beef. Show me the experimental proof that this is the theory of everything. Well, that's why we're looking at the slightest deviation in the standard model of subatomic particles. By looking at electrons and looking at muons, muons are one of the big constituents of cosmic rays from outer space, the standard model predicts that they are identical, except one's heavier than the other. Muons are heavier than electrons. But this new experiment from Geneva, Switzerland, shows that there could be a deviation that muons, mesons are in fact different from electrons, and that means that we have to go to a higher theory. Now, in string theory, string theory says that all the particles are nothing but vibrations on a tiny string. So we live in the lowest octave. Everything you see around you, the trees, the stars, your own body, consists of subatomic particles vibrating in the lowest vibration, that is the lowest octave of the string. But the string has higher octaves, higher octaves that could give you dark matter, invisible matter which makes up most of the universe, but is invisible. It surrounds the Milky Way, holds the Milky Way together, but is invisible to our telescopes. Well, string theory says it's nothing but the next octave of a vibrating string. So this is causing a lot of excitement because the main criticism of string theory has been, show me the beef. Where is the experimental proof? As Carl Sagan liked to say, remarkable claims require remarkable proof. Where is the proof that string theory is the final theory? Well, find out more about this by getting a copy of my latest book coming out next week. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. In other words, this is the greatest quest in the history of science. It's the quest to find the final theory, the God equation, the equation which set into motion the Big Bang, set into motion the creation of the universe itself, and its 2,000-year history, going all the way back to the Greeks. The 2,000-year history of the search for the theory of everything is contained in my latest book, The God Equation, The Quest for the theory of everything. And if you want to find out more about it, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. And when you go to my website, you'll see references to the four New York Times bestsellers that I've written. I've written books such as Physics of the Impossible, Future of the Mind, Physics of the Future, and Physics of the Impossible. Also, you may want to go to my Facebook site. In fact, I have about four and a half million fans on Facebook. But once again, if you want to know more about what I do, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org, and find out what I do for a living. And that's right, I work on string theory. In fact, I'm the co-founder of string field theory, which is one of the main branches of string theory. And I've worked on the theory since about, oh, 1968. It's hard to believe that I worked on string theory for most of my professional life. But now, with the Large Hadron Collider, now with new data coming in, we have the prospect, the prospect perhaps of testing aspects of this fable theory. So find out what all the excitement is about. Our latest book is The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything.
Well, I'm afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. In the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about a consequence of the theory of everything, time travel. That's right. Einstein's theory allows for time travel, but you need a theory of everything to make sure that the time machine doesn't blow up when you enter it. And so with us today is Princeton physicist Richard Gott talking about his design for a time machine. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. Well, in the second half of Exploration, we're going to go right to the cutting edge of science, where the usual laws of physics begin to break down. We're talking about Einstein's theory of relativity, which allows for, believe it or not, time travel. Yes, there have been a number of solutions of Einstein's equations which allow for time travel, but the question is, are they stable? The question is, how much energy does it take to create one of these things? Is it really practical to build a time machine? Well, to find out, of course, we need a theory of everything, a theory that combines relativity with the quantum theory, because quantum radiation may make the time machine impractical. So you need a theory of everything, and that's where my latest book, The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything, comes into play. We need a higher theory, a theory that combines relativity with the quantum theory. Well, with us today is Professor Richard Gott. He's a professor of physics at Princeton University, and believe it or not, he has his own version of a time machine. And it seems to obey the laws of physics. However, as I mentioned before, the key question is twofold. One, how much energy does it take to bend time into a pretzel to create a time machine? And second of all, how stable is it under quantum corrections? Once you start to add in the quantum theory, radiation, the quantum radiation may close the time machine, the time machine may explode, the gateway to the past may be closed, any number of things may happen, and that's why you need a theory of everything. Well, once again, our special guest today is Professor Richard Gott, Professor of Physics at Princeton University, talking about his version of a workable time machine. Now I'd like to introduce our very special guest today. Once again, we have with us Professor J. Richard Gott III. He's a professor at Princeton University, and he's the author of a book called Time Travel in Einstein's Universe, The Physical Possibilities of Travel Through Time. 
Now, just remember that we're not talking about some inventor in a laboratory in his basement creating a time machine by which you can erase certain rather embarrassing events in your history. We are, in fact, talking about hard physics. We're talking about perhaps one day a civilization much more advanced than ours, or, ha- or perhaps maybe even our descendants thousands of years from now, may have the ability to manipulate the energy of a star. In which case, they may be able to create a time machine capable of changing the past. And so the question is: Is time travel possible, given the fact that there are all sorts of horrible paradoxes you can get if you go backwards in time, for example, and shoot your parents before you're born? So once again, today our guest is Professor J. Richard Gott III, a professor at Princeton University, and we are talking about. Time machines and time travel. So,、uh, wh- what started your romance with time machines? Because in the area of physics,、uh, most physicists tend to,、uh, at least in the old days, scoff at the whole notion of going backwards in time. Well, I got interested in time travel by exploring some solutions to Einstein's equations.、Um, Einstein developed his theory of general relativity, which is his theory. Of curved space-time to explain gravity, and we take this、uh, theory very seriously because when he when he finally solved the equations for this in 1915,、uh, they made predictions predictions about light bending as it would pass near the sun, and these were checked experimentally, and Einstein was found to be right, and Newton was found to be wrong. So、uh, since then, people have been interested in exploring. Exact solutions to Einstein's equations, and you've heard of probably the most famous one is the black hole solution. That's an exact solution to Einstein's equations. So we take black holes seriously, even though they're quite extraordinary objects, because they do solve Einstein's equations of gravity. So I was in, I got interested in cosmic strings. These are、uh, theoretical objects that are.、Um, Uh, dense threads of energy left over after the Big Bang that are predicted in about half the theories of、uh, unified particle physics in the early universe. We we haven't found them yet, but we are searching for them. And、uh, I found an exact solution for、uh, one cosmic string. What the geometry around one cosmic string would look like. Uh, and William Hiscock found the same solution independently of me, so we're given joint credit for this solution to Einstein's equations. And then later, I investigated two moving cosmic strings. What an exact solution would look like if two strings were to pass each other. And、uh, I indeed found an exact solution for that、uh, geometry. And it turned out that if the strings were moving fast enough, but still slower than the speed of light. That this was a solution that would allow you to circle around the cosmic strings and arrive back home before you started. So <laughs> it would allow time travel to the past. And there've been a number of general relativity solutions like this. The first one was found by famous mathematician Kurt Gödel in 1949.、Um, uh, it's a rotating universe that、uh, we don't live in that kind of universe, but it's an interesting solution to the equations. Uh, that allows time travel to the past, and if there's one solution like that, there could be others. And then Kip Thorne and his associates found wormhole solutions that allowed time travel to the past. So it's extremely interesting that these equations of、uh, Einstein's of general relativity,、uh, 
uh, themselves, and this is our best theory of gravity at the time, uh, uh, seem to allow solutions that allow time travel to the past. So I got interested in it just from trying to understand um, Einstein's equations with objects that we were interested in. Okay, now let's talk about the movies. Everyone likes the movies, and yeah. uh, people have seen a lot of movies where we have black holes that are rotating very rapidly. Right. And according to mathematician Roy Kerr in 1963, he did find a solution of Einstein's equations where if you pass through the ring, uh, not a point, but a ring that's spinning very rapidly, you would wind up on a parallel universe, perhaps even in a distant point in time. So could you elaborate about what happens if you, heaven forbid, fall through a black hole and make it, quote, to the other side, unquote? Well, this was an unperturbed black hole. Uh, it's the solution to Einstein's equations, and um, uh, this is one that's left alone completely, and you ignore the effects of Hawking radiation, which we can mention later. Uh, but this first solution for a rotating black hole showed that if you traveled inside the black hole, instead of a singular point in the center, you would find, as you said, a ring singularity. If you pass through the ring, uh, you could navigate your spaceship in such a way that you could travel back in time. Um, and then after leaving this region, you could go uh, and, and pop out into another universe, um, uh, sort of like getting on an elevator at a store and going up to the first, uh, going from the first floor to the second, and you could get out on the second floor universe. Then later you could go out and go up to a third floor universe and so forth. But there was no getting back to the first floor. There, once you went in the rotating black hole, it was not possible to come back outside and brag to your friends about your adventures. But quite interestingly, there was a region of time travel that was trapped inside the rotating black hole in Kerr's solution. Okay, now let's say you go through the black hole and you're not crushed by gravity because it's, you know, gravity is spread out a little bit throughout the ring. However, there are some naysayers who say, wait a minute, let's not go so fast. And you mentioned that the black hole was not perturbed. So could you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the naysayers who say that maybe you can't make it quite all the way through that black hole? Well, the trouble is that the when you pass inside this uh, uh, black hole and you pass into the region of time travel, if you're looking back outside, you're watching that you're seeing the history of the external universe as you're passing outside. And in in Mr. Kerr's solution, uh, as you passed into the region of time travel, you would be able to see the entire future history of the universe pass before your eyes. Now. You might say, well, this is a good thing, very interesting for historians. You get to see the whole future history of the universe in a finite amount of time. But the trouble is those photons coming in would be infinitely blue-shifted and, and become, instead of visible photons, they would become ultraviolet and gamma-ray photons. So these could kill you. You have to pass them on your way into the region of time travel. Um, uh, other effects need to be considered, too, like the fact that the black hole may evaporate. Would it be expected to evaporate from Hawking radiation, which cuts off your view of the very late history of the universe, but also in, in, induces other effects, quantum effects on the inside of the black hole? So um, the, the situation is that um, uh, some people have explored uh, this um, uh, situation, uh, Mr. Burko, for one, Amos Ori. 
Um, and they have uh, found that, that you, traveling to the region of time travel, um, you, you would probably pass a singularity. The, the, the uh, curvature of space-time would, would, would become uh, infinite. However, um, it takes a very brief amount of time for this to occur, so the singularity may be, may be weak in the sense that it, that it may not tear your body completely apart. And also, quantum effects would be expected to uh, knock out any infinities in the solution. So um, the trouble is that we don't really uh, know exactly what happens to you when you go inside a rotating black hole, and we, we may need a theory of quantum gravity uh, to explain this. We know how gravity behaves on macroscopic, ordinary scales. Einstein's theory gives us a wonderful and very well-checked theory of that. But we don't know how gravity behaves on microscopic scales. And um, to understand what would really happen going into a black hole, we may need to know that. Okay, well, we have had on this radio show several people who work in superstring theory, like I do, and yeah. we do look at these things. However, the theory is not very well developed yet. So let's ask a hypothetical question. Let's say you are an advanced civilization, like we see in the movies, uh, an advanced civilization that can move planets and move stars. I mean, really powerful technology we're having here now. Yeah. With that kind of technology, do you think that someone could go through the ring to perhaps a parallel universe or perhaps in time, or it's just simply not known in terms of what we know about quantum gravity? Or do most people think, bah, humbug, you just can't do it? Well, um, I think that the... Um uh, if you were using my um, uh, uh, cosmic strings, uh, what a super civilization would try to do is is find a loop of cosmic strings. Uh, cosmic strings either are infinite; uh, they have no ends, so either they're infinite. If we found them, they're either infinite or they come in loops. So you can think of spaghetti or spaghettios. So find one of the spaghettios, one of the loops, manipulate it so that it collapses by a large factor. And you could, you could arrange it with your massive spaceships flying around it so that uh, the two sides of the string would pass each other at the speed required to make a time machine. But I was able to show in that case that this would also uh, uh, be in grave danger of forming a black hole. In fact, it would likely form a black hole. So the regions of time travel would likely be trapped inside, just as we've talked about in the rotating uh, black hole case. So um, I think one thing to emphasize is that um, uh, these are projects that really, uh, th this loop would weigh half the mass of our own galaxy. So we're talking about projects that really only a super civilization w could attempt. But as you say, we're interested in finding out whether a civilization with arbitrarily large powers, but, but still operating under the laws of physics, could do it. And I think uh, probably until we really get a theory of quantum gravity, uh, we can't say for sure whether they would succeed or not. Okay, now let's talk about the wormhole, because on Star Trek, they simply zap through wormholes to the other side of the galaxy. Now, if you had a uh, black hole, there is a problem there, and that is it's a one-way ticket. It's basically a roach motel. Uh, you go in and you never check out again. That's it's right. a one-way trip. However, these wormholes that we see on Star Trek are transversible. You go back and forth, back and forth. It's like uh, taking a Sunday drive right through a wormhole. 
So tell us a little bit about wormholes and whether or not they're practical. Well, the wormhole got, idea got started when Carl Sagan, who was writing this book, Contact, which later became a famous movie, um, uh, he wanted to use the wormhole to get Jodie Foster from one part of the galaxy to another. And so he called up his friend Kip Thorne and said, uh, listen, I'd, I'd like to get the physics right here. What about the physics of wormholes? So Kip Thorne and his associates investigated this, and they found out that in order to transverse it back and forth, um, uh, you had to prop it open with some what we call negative energy density stuff. This is stuff that weighs less than zero. Uh, in other words, you'd have to add uh, mass to this to get back to zero. It's, it's, it's stuff that weighs less than zero. Well, that's very strange stuff, but um, you might say, well, that's strange. You wouldn't expect to find that. But uh, curiously, we do know of a quantum mechanical effect, the Casimir effect, which um, is one where if you take two parallel metal con conducting plates and you put them very close together, the quantum vacuum state in between the two plates actually acquires a negative energy density. It weighs less than zero. So uh, Kipthorn was proposing, and, 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 and similar effects occur in, in connected with Hawking radiation and black holes and so forth. So we know of quantum effects that can induce negative energy density states. So um, what Kip Thorne proposed to do was to, to cover the mouth of each um, wormhole with a, a, a conducting plate and put them uh, close to each other in the wormhole tunnel, 10 to the minus 10 centimeters apart, so that they introduced a large negative energy density and then you could traverse by opening trap doors in these, um, in these uh, metal plates. You could traverse the wormhole and, um, uh, you know, not be killed. Um, so, um, again, the engineering effects of this were enormous. Uh, the, the, the wormhole he was talking about involved 200 million solar masses, 200 million times the mass of the sun. So, um, but, again, he was interested to know whether... Uh, these things were, were possible in principle at all under the laws of uh, general relativity. Okay. Well, let's say you want to build one of these things, okay? People talk about these things. Uh, Paul Davies, who we actually had on the radio show a few years ago, even wrote a book about how to build a time machine, okay? Sure. Now, again, one of the problems is you have to get negative energy if you go the route of the wormhole. And then the question is, well, how do you get negative energy in large quantities? The Casimir effect is very tiny. It takes laboratory instruments, very delicate instruments, to measure this effect. However, we want to just rip space and time apart and, and uh, change the topology of, of the universe. So if you were, once again, a very advanced civilization, how could you possibly assemble large quantities of negative energy to open up a wormhole? Well, the, the mechanism that's being used is to, is to bring the plates very close together. Um, the plates are, 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 are pulling you to, toward, toward each other. Uh, this effect has been measured in, in the lab. And if you let the plates go very close to each other, you can get a very large uh, amount of um, uh, negative energy density. You have to engineer this uh, um, so that the plates can go. In, in Kip Thorne's case, he was he was having them uh, ten to the tenth centimeters, uh, ten to the minus ten centimeters uh, apart. So 
Um, that's the mechanism that's used. How do you get the wormhole in the first place? The, the idea here was that um, space-time on very small scales, 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, microscopic scales, um, may be sponge-like. Quantum fluctuations might be causing little microscopic wormholes to be forming all the time. And so the idea would be to find one of those and somehow enlarge it uh, this was Thorne's proposal, and 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 make it large enough so and and then then you could keep propping it open with this negative energy density stuff. So um, uh, no doubt it's an extraordinarily difficult um, uh, feat, but we're interested to know whether it's possible in principle. Okay, well, there's even a television commercial now I was watching uh, talking about building a wormhole to deliver products to the customers. So the idea of wormholes is out there. However, the advertisement stumbles on this whole question of, well, how do you energize this thing with negative energy? So you mentioned the Casimir effect. Uh, where else Where else in the universe can we find negative energy? It's a very exotic kind of thing. It's not the kind of thing we see in the laboratory. Uh, where else in the universe can we find negative energy? Well, black holes is one uh, location. Um, when Stephen Hawking was working on um, black holes, um, one of the things he, he proved was that if um, uh, uh, once you formed a black hole, it would only get bigger. Uh, its horizon, as it were, would, would only get bigger. Uh, and so as it gobbled more and more material, in fact, he, he proved a theorem that if energy density was always positive, uh, the black hole, if you just add energy density to it, the black hole would always get bigger. But then people started to think about um, what would happen to a black hole uh, with quantum effects, and Stephen Hawking showed that black holes actually evaporate. And so uh, over time, um, there's a quantum vacuum effect uh, in the empty space around the black hole, uh, that you have uh, vacuum fluctuations that cause uh, particles to be emitted from the black hole and then also cause the, the black hole to lose energy. And so if you look at the um, quantum vacuum state that exists around a black hole, which Stephen Hawking found, um, it has a slight negative energy density which steals energy from the black hole and causes it to evaporate. And so uh, that's an example of um, a naturally occurring phenomena that we expect is occurring uh, uh, every day. Now, Paul Davies, in his book on how to build a time machine, uh, stumbles over this very same question, and he mumbles that, well, maybe we can build banks of laser beams. Uh, lasers can have positive and negative what are called squeeze states, yeah. and he doesn't explain how to do it. And this is, of course, the key question. What is the gasoline? What is the energy that drives your machine? And he mumbles and says, well, maybe one day we'll have huge banks of lasers that we could fire into our chamber to prop open the mouth of a wormhole. Um, are you impressed by that book? Uh, well, I probably wouldn't use lasers. <laughs> I, mean, I, I still think the Casimir effect that, that, that uh, Thorne talked about is the most uh, promising proposal to get the negative energy density state. We, we know it produces a negative energy density state. And uh, the, the engineering question is, you know, can you build these plates 
you know, close enough together. This is a this is a, um, a, a extraordinarily challenging um, engineering uh, solution. But he he was going to do this by having electrically charged plates. The electric charge would keep the plate from collapsing. The the repulsion of the electric charges would keep the plate from collapsing, and and to put the two plates very close together. So. Um, I think that's the uh, the original Kip Thorne and his associates' proposal is 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 still the most, uh, uh, if you will, practical one, and 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 this is real, really something that we've observed in the lab. So I think it's uh, by that turn uh, uh, they were trying for a, a conservative solution that involved physics that we uh, understand. Of course, there are many paradoxes with regards to time travel. What happens if you go backwards in time and kill your parents before you're born? Well, there are two resolutions of the time travel paradox. One is that the universe splits in half, and in one universe, you did in fact kill somebody who looks very similar to your parents, but they're not really your parents because the universe has forked into two separate roads. However, there's another way to resolve these paradoxes proposed by Professor Igor Novikov of Russia, and he proposes that perhaps self-consistency is enough. Perhaps there is a force preventing you from pulling the trigger. Just like there's a law preventing you from walking on the ceiling, there could be a law perhaps to prevent you from creating a time paradox by killing your parents before you're born. Personally, I prefer the first method, which is called many worlds, to resolve all these delicious paradoxes of what happens if you go backwards in time and meet your teenage mother and she falls in love with you. And that concludes our interview with Professor Richard Gott, professor of physics at Princeton University and author of a book called Time Travel in Einstein's Universe. Well, before we conclude this section, let me give you the pros and cons of the practicality of building a time machine. As you can tell from listening to this interview with Professor Richard Gott, the energy, the energy necessary to bend time into a pretzel, the energy necessary to warp the fabric of space and time so that it turns in on itself is incredible. We're talking, for example, of the energy of a black hole. So that's the first big problem. This is not for the average inventor. This is not for the guy who builds a time machine in his basement. We're talking about a very advanced civilization that can handle cosmic forms of energy, energy comparable to that of a black hole. Second is the stability of the time machine. You see, Einstein's theory of general relativity is not enough. It's not enough to say that Einstein's theory allows for time travel. You have to then calculate quantum corrections. In other words, radiation. The radiation buildup may be so severe that it cuts off the time machine and you are stranded someplace in the past. Or the machine may simply blow up because of quantum corrections. In fact, Stephen Hawking, writing about these theories, thought that the machine would be basically unstable. Radiation would build up to the point where the thing would explode. Now, my personal point of view is quantum corrections cannot be calculated using ordinary Einstein's theory and quantum field theory. We need a higher theory to do this. And this is where string theory comes in. String theory allows you to handle these radiative corrections 
So perhaps they become finite and the machine doesn't blow up in your face. So in other words, ultimately, the final verdict on time travel may come from a theory of everything. And if you want to know more about the pros and cons of a quantum theory of gravity, get a copy of my latest book. It's called The God Equation, The Quest for the Theory of Everything. The book talks in detail about the pitfalls when you try to combine relativity with the quantum theory to create a theory of everything. So in summary, I think it's not enough to find a solution of Einstein's equations. You have to find a solution of Einstein's equations with the quantum theory. And the only theory which at the present time can do this is string theory. So for more information, get a copy of the book, The God Equation. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku. Join us every week when we discuss science and its impact on society. And go to my website to find out what I'm up to. My website is mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org, and find out all the things that I've been doing. Good day. <music>